Listeners are advised that the following program contains strong language that some may find offensive. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. Talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. When black women get angry, people think that we're being unreasonable, that we're being unfair, Mm. that we're just causing trouble, that we're being too uppity, and they're never addressing why we're angry. And that's incredibly frustrating. And I hate when I catch myself like modulating my behavior, modulating my tone so that I'm not perceived as an angry black woman. And I'm a relatively chill, quiet person. And... Sometimes people will say, why are you so angry? Facing up in conversation with Nakia Louie and Roxanne Gay. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Over the next few weeks, we'll be taking a look back at some of the most important conversations we've featured on the program over the past 12 months. This week, you'll hear from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander playwright, actor and screenwriter Nakia Louie as she sits down with one of the strongest voices in American feminism, Roxanne Gay. Held as part of this year's All About Women Festival, the conversation aimed to explore experiences of racism, misogyny and trauma, focusing on how these issues can often manifest within the creative industries and impact upon the creative process. Roxanne Gay is a commentator, a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling books, Bad Feminist and Hunger. Nakia Louie is the co-writer of Black Comedy. She's been a playwright in residence for Sydney's Belvoir Theatre and artist in residence for the Griffin Theatre. Most recently, Nakia has appeared as a regular guest on Screen Time on ABC and her six-part comedy series, Kiki and Kitty, premiered on ABC in 2017. She is a Gamilaroi and Torres Strait Islander woman and her latest show, Preppers, premiered on ABC late last year. Let's listen in now. Now, I want to start this session with some pop culture, Roxanne. Mm-hmm. We're both big fans of it. We are. What role does pop culture play in your life? And more specifically, what's your current pop culture fascination? Well, you know, I think pop culture, people like to segregate it as this guilty pleasure, this thing that we do that's separate from our realities, when in fact it is a product of our realities. And so I watch pop culture certainly to be entertained, primarily. Yeah. But I also recognize that it is a reflection of our cultural values, for better or worse. And intellectually, I find that to be really interesting. Because when you look at the kinds of, especially television and movies that are made and who they're made for, you start to think, well, who is getting left behind? And we're finally, after many decades of demanding inclusion and representation, starting to see a broader range of pop culture artifacts that aren't grounded in some of the typical tropes that we expect in inclusive work. And so right now I'm really into uh, Yellow Jackets, which is this (laughs) really great show that's strange and really well written and really well acted. And there's a show on NBC called Grand Crew, And it's a show about these black friends, uh, four or five black friends, and it's just so smart, and it's so funny, and it's a little weird, and it's just great that we're finally getting the chance to be weird. 
and weird in the way that white people are encouraged to be all the time. <laughs> so there's a lot that's happening, but those are two of my favorite things right now. Now, pop culture has helped us a lot during lockdown, and thank you everyone for coming out today. Yes. But you did something really special during lockdown, quite different. You got married I did. during lockdown. I did. <laughs> now... I had the pleasure of meeting your lovely wife backstage, but yes. can you tell us a bit of your love story? I love a love story. Oh yeah, it's a great story. And she's going <laughs> to run out here and tell me that I'm telling it wrong. <laughs> so I'm married to this incredible woman named Debbie Millman, and she's brilliant. She has the most incredible design sense. She uh, is one of the first podcasters ever. I could go on and on. And she also smells good. So <laughs> like 10 out of 10. But... Uh, many years ago, I had written some books and she sent me, an, not many years ago, but four or five years ago, she sent me an email talking about how she would love to interview me for her podcast. And so I was like, oh, talk to my publicist. And I know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, there's just things I don't want to deal with. And so I sent her to my publicist and my publicist did not get back to her because I don't know why. And then she left HarperCollins. And so the email, she emailed again and the email bounced. And so Debbie wrote me again and she was like, well, Amanda doesn't seem to be working at HarperCollins anymore. Who should I direct this inquiry to? And I said, well, I'm a little interviewed out right now. And so I'm going to pass, but thank you. And then she read Hunger and sent me this incredible email talking about the connection that she felt to the book. And... I was really, you know, I appreciated the email, and I said, thank you, and I know, <laughs> I don't come out looking great in this story, <laughs> but it's not that, I, I just, it never occurred to me, ever, that she would be interested in me, and then she did an event with a good friend of mine named Ashley Ford, and at the end of it, they went back to her house, her and the rest of the people at this event, and they were all talking, and Ashley mentioned me, and Debbie, in a moment of sort of courage or peak, she said that, oh my God, I, you know, I am a fan of hers, I have a crush on her, it, but I, I understand that she has someone, and my friend knew that I was in a relationship, but it was a complicated relationship, and I was allowed to see other people, and she was like, oh, shoot your shot. <laughs> and so then Debbie emailed me and told me and because Ashley co-signed and was like yeah Debbie's great I was like oh sure <laughs> so Debbie emailed me and asked if she could take me out on a proper date and nobody has ever asked me that and I was like sure <laughs> and I literally wrote her back sure <laughs> <laughs> And uh, then I didn't say anything. And then one day I was on Twitter and someone asked me if I was going to show up in like Peoria. And I was like, my schedule's on my website. And so she checked my website, found out I was coming to New York to launch Best American Short Stories 2018. And she asked me if I would like to get a drink or something afterwards. And I think I said, yes, let's get dinner. <laughs> and I didn't <laughs> give her any information. Um... <laughs> And the day of, she was like, oh, I made a reservation at a really great spot. And I was like, oh, I made us dinner reservations. <laughs> um, I'll see you tonight. <laughs> and I didn't Google her. So I didn't know what she looked like. She came to my event. 
at the end of the night, as people were coming up to me in the signing line, I was like, oh my God, is this her? And sometimes I would be really excited, and sometimes I would be like, oh. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> and then she was the very last person in the line, and she was very hot. And I was, right? I <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> so we went out on a great date. I spilled water on her. <laughs> And uh, on the sidewalk after, she asked me if she could kiss me. And Aww. that was so sexy. Yeah. Nobody's ever asked me if they could do anything, ever. And so I said yes. And it was a very good kiss. And she walked all the way home, and that was like 30 blocks. And she was very excited, and she called her friends screaming from the phone while she was walking down the street. And I got in my car and went to my hotel, and I was like, that was nice. <laughs> and we had already set up our second date, and we've been together ever since. Aww. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. It's funny that you mentioned hunger, because I actually have a quote here. It's one of my favorite books of yours. And it said, living in my body has expanded my empathy for others and the truth of, other, of the truths of their bodies. Certainly, it has shown me the importance of inclusivity and acceptance, not merely tolerance for diversity, for diverse bodies. Now, I'd be curious to know, has your relationship with Debbie impacted the way that you see yourself? Yes, it has. I mean, you know, you often hear, like, you have to love yourself before someone else will love you, and that's simply not true. <laughs> you can find love and hate yourself at the same time. It's, <laughs> it's very easy. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, Debbie is a remarkable woman in a, in a lot of ways. And everyone in my family has noticed that I've changed and that I'm more open. I'm actually more patient and I'm just generally happier. And it's simply because I'm well-loved. And be, part of being well-loved is believing, if this person thinks that I'm okay enough to be seen with in public, which is a low bar, um, then maybe like, I deserve to be like, alive. And you know, like, the, if someone tells you you're beautiful and like, shows it and acts on it often enough, you do start to believe, oh, maybe I've got something going on here. And so it has impacted. And, and I know that, like, especially as a feminist, like, you should feel that inside yourself, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> it just, sometimes you need validation. And it, some, it, it helps. It really does. Especially when it doesn't come from a place of objectification. It comes yeah. from a place of genuine appreciation. And to be with someone who is with me because of who I am yeah. and who I am today, not like some sort of imaginary, oh, if I lose enough weight, um, and who appreciates me as I am and sees beauty in it instead of just like, I love you, therefore I find you beautiful, um, is really gratifying and it helps. And so it just like, you know, makes you walk with a little bit more of a strut. No, I completely, oh, get, clap, please. <laughs> Let me hold you back. No, I, I find that really insightful because one of the things I took away from hunger, which really resonated with me, was this ownership over bigger bodies. Yeah. You know, ownership over female bodies and ownership over black bodies. And I'm someone who has had 
two weight loss surgeries um, in between seasons of TV shows. So my weight has been really publicly commentated on, mm. um, you know, all through school. I, I don't ever feel, have a memory of ever feeling like I own my body. Yeah. And to be honest, I still don't. Mm-hmm. I think this idea of trying to, I guess, decolonize your body and, and have this pride can sometimes be forced upon you and it can feel like a really lonely place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so finding someone, my partner, my husband, sorry, um, finding someone who I guess you can be intimate with and unashamed with and have that privilege of that intimacy with is, you know, I think it's a rarity is maybe I don't feel that in myself mm-hmm. right now and it's the only place I can. I think. Certainly. You know, Debbie came along at the right time. You know, she just came along at the right time. I, I was ready for something different. It wasn't that I was in a bad relationship before her. That would be unfair. But I was in a relationship where I didn't feel like I was enough for that person to do the right thing, to make the grand gesture. And you get tired of chasing that, of chasing like that, waiting for someone to love you enough to commit to you in some way. And with her, I've never felt like I had to prove myself which in turn just makes me want to be the best version of myself regardless. And to have that space where I can feel reasonably confident in myself has been great, especially because, you know, when you're a little bit in the public eye, people have a lot of thoughts and opinions about you and your body, and they talk to you about them all the time. Like, you know, just people randomly giving me weight loss advice and, like, Mm. recipes, and it's just like, what is wrong with all of you? Stop. I'd get a lot of messages from men in my Facebook comments requests, mm. and it would be, it always start with, look, I'm not going to lie. I find you very attractive. It's like you messaged me and I was accusing you of lying. Mm-hmm. Or like, just list the food, like just the weirdest, yes. weirdest things. It's like, you and never feel completely yours. No, and you know, like one of the things I write about in Hunger, and it's something I think about quite a lot, is that when you live in a fat body, you don't have the same level of privacy as someone in a thin body. People already know something about you and they make a lot of assumptions based on very little knowledge. And, you know, I had weight loss surgery two and a half years, three years ago, and I have no regrets. I would do it again. It was really hard and I, had, I, was, I didn't want to talk about it publicly and then I knew eventually I was going to have to And I also knew that I was going to have to deal with, you know, the reality is that when you have a lot of weight to lose, it's a very long process. And like a lot of times people are like, I don't see any difference. And it's like, well, okay. And and so that brings an an extra level of pressure where, again, you don't have the same privacy because you're seen too much in public and people then for are tracking this thing which is like, you didn't read my book. Uh, stop. <laughs> but I can't even imagine what, how you handle being on television as much as you are and then having to deal with all of that commentary when you're just trying to, like, live. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, I've been thinking about it because I'm, I'm having a child, which is, like, the first time I've ever said this, so it's weird. Um, and I've been thinking about... How do I give her a freedom to just exist within her body? When I look in the mirror, I see something that doesn't feel like mine sometimes. Mm -hmm. I see kind of, you know, skin, the skin colour that carries the fact that, you know, 
my family went through so much trauma. Mm -hmm. I see scars. I just see something that is so foreign. So I've been really kind of thinking about what that is and and what are the values I want to instill with her. And I ask you about love because I'm so curious to know what you have to say. But um, I was thinking about the idea of hope as a virtue Mm -hmm. and do I have to give my daughter hope? And I hate hope because really I'm a bit of a pessimist. Um, And I think hope should be more of a doing word and quite often it's weaponized against people of color. It is. You know, that you have to have hope. It's like, fuck that. Right, Um, like hope where? Yeah. Mm. You know, especially in, I will say, countries like the United States and Australia, uh, especially for black people, we don't have a lot of opportunities to hope because so many systemic forces are keeping their boots on our necks. And so, you know, like, what do you want us to hope for? Like, we want to hope for you to stop being crazy racists? Yeah. It sounds like a conservative with a bit of a joint in their mouth, right? Just have hope. Manifest your way out of it. Well, because, you know, it's interesting that you bring up hope because I think about hope a lot. And for whatever reason, people find inspiration in my writing, which is not my goal. But but it does mean a lot that people connect in that way. But then they say, what can we hope? What what can we be hopeful about? Mm. And, you know, it just depends on who asks me that question. But I often think, not much. And it's not my job as a black woman to give you hope to make you feel better and less complicit in the ills of the world. And, oh, thank you. (laughs) And so I try to avoid language around hope without making it seem like there's nothing to live for. Uh, Because there is a lot to live for. And I, I do think that there's a lot of space for change, but... You know, a lot of times people also ask, you know, sort of like, what can I do? And especially white people like to ask this question. And I always like to respond, do you have access to Google? (laughs) (laughs) Or libraries? You know, because the answers are already out there, but a lot of what you can do is talk to your families. And, you know, like, don't tell me about your racist grandfather or your racist dad, go talk to your racist man relative, or sometimes it's a woman, and fix them. Yeah. And if everyone goes and fixes one relative, (laughs) (laughs) we might get somewhere. Yeah. We're very applausive crowds. Yeah, I mean, it's a very easy thing to do. Or a friend, you know, like you always have that friend who's probably making some sort of off-color, vaguely racist joke and you're uncomfortable and you shift in your seat and you're like, I know that's bad, but (laughs) I like them very much. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, I think you answered my question because I wonder, I was thinking about the importance of love within political movements. Mm-hmm. And I think that you just answered that with great care. It's that care, invest in people, invest in the change itself. Yes. So thinking about how change comes about and being pregnant, I was very hormonal, crying, sitting on my lounge, and I sent my mum a text. My mum was in a very, um, she's here tonight, my whole family's here tonight, it's probably half the audience. Um, <laughs> um, and I sent her, she was in a, a very physically, emotionally, and mentally abusive relationship with my biological father. And I sent her a message, and I said, I just don't know how you did this. Like, I don't know how you did this on your own. And I don't know, but I'm so grateful that you did. And she sent me a text back, and she said, I wouldn't have been able to do it without you. Like, I wouldn't have survived that without you. It just made me think that we don't do things because of hope. So often I don't even think we do things, you know, out of a kind of faux, cool nihilism I like to pretend to have. 
And this is very sentimental, but I think, you know, the biggest change that we see in our communities, the most monumentous change that we see within families, communities, is because of, because of the love that we have for each other. It is. And I've had a lot of opportunity to think about love, partly in, since meeting Debbie, yeah. and I think partly in, in starting to believe that I could maybe love myself, partly because of my family who I've always been close with and who, who have always been loving. But, you know, love in its purest sense, not the sort of triacly Valentine's Day version of love, but the love of tolerating people day in and day out. <laughs> not my wife, but my family. <laughs> uh, you know, and like, and being there for them and having them be there for you has taught me so much. You know, my brother died in July and it was really, really unexpected. We're still, quite frankly, in shock and he left behind two children and he left behind a mess. And that, because when someone dies young at 43, there's no way to leave neatly. And it's only love that has allowed us to get through it. You know, we've been spending a lot more time together. We went to Disney World for Christmas because that's what my brother and nephew wanted to do, my other brother. And when you spend all this time with these people and you're all carrying the same grief and you sort of do whatever it is to prop each other up and be there for each other... You know, I, I just realized that without that love, simply we would not have been able to survive it because it's just one of those unsurvivable things. And I, I think a lot of people are put in situations where it is love that gets you through and it's that real love, that difficult love. Not love that is hard to come by, but love that just requires a little bit of energy and effort and care. And I also wish that when we talked about love, we talked about care because yeah. care is is a part of love and I, I do and I write about this sometimes in my work that we tend to be fairly careless with one another and ourselves and I always wonder like how can I bring more care to this situation and I think about it as an educator I think about it as a writer as a public speaker and you know, I'm always looking for more expansive ways of bringing that care about in my work and in my life. Yeah, very much. I think that we often forget that on the other side of our politics and our ideologies and our actions are people. Yes. And that's the culmination of our movements. They're people. Which brings me to your pinned tweet on your Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought it was really, really good. It was yeah. really interesting. It says, I will say it again, my tweets are not meant to be universal. They will not nor cannot account for every reality. And if something I say doesn't include you or apply, you, apply to you, that doesn't invalidate your truth. And I just wanted to know if you could maybe speak to that and maybe the context in which you were responding or, or writing that to. Yeah. <sighs> Twitter. <laughs> uh, I used to love Twitter. It was great. And... Unfortunately, we are in a, it's going to pass, but right now we're in a time that is incredibly inelastic and people have become more and more calcified and rigid and unwilling to consider other points of view. And I'm not talking about like going in and chatting with that racist over there. Forget them. They're, they're unreachable. They're not going to change. Um, but when we're talking even to like-minded people, we tend to hold each other to these wildly unrealistic standards. And when you make any sort of mistake or you say something that anyone disagrees with, all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. 
And I've also found that when you're speaking and you don't acknowledge every single possible reality, someone always is like, well, that's not my experience. And it's like, good, because I wasn't talking about you. Yeah. And so when I wrote that tweet, and I stand by it, and that's why it's my pinned tweet, it's just that I'm not trying to be universal with anything I do. Universality is not the goal. I think universality is the death of intelligence and everything interesting, because if you appeal to everyone, then you're not really saying anything of value. Because when you look at everyone, and like what appeals to everyone, like CBS shows, it's just like, mm, no, that's not me. You want, like, all I need to do, do is appeal to one person. And if it's more than one person, that's lovely. But if I can reach one person with my work, I know that I've done something good. Because as a kid, even now as an adult, when I read and I find something that I connect with, it's an incredible feeling to know, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not crazy. I'm not the only person who's carrying this burden. I'm not the only person who knows this kind of joy. And that's a gift. Yeah. It's really interesting because I do think there's an onus on people from marginal, marginal diasporas to be accountable to everything and everyone mm. all at once. And they can become a lightning rod. And it's an onus and responsibility that we give to them that we don't give to those who hold power at the centre. And it's kind of dehumanising. And I wonder if sometimes our politics, you know, we, we, we hold these politics in order to, I guess, authenticate our political identities as opposed to our di- ideas disrupting the centre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That wasn't yeah. a question, that was a statement. Yeah, yeah so no, I, I, I agree, I yeah. agree. Yeah. Um, now, going, going back to Twitter, spent a lot of time on Twitter this week, but <laughs> we hear a little about women, and I just wanted to uh, talk about Kim Kardashian's recent comments. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> so she said, I have the best advice women in business, get your fucking ass up and work. It seems like nobody wants to work these days. Mm-hmm. You know, we've um, an International Women's Day, happening this week as well, this kind of corporatization of breakfasts and this idea of female empowerment. Uh, I wonder, are Kim Kardashian's recent comments indicative of a greater problem within our political movements and gender empowerment that we're really only empowering a certain type of woman and we're replicating the, 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 the systematic oppression and those values that, yes. that, yeah, that we're fighting against? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> That is a great question, as all of them have been. It's a very leading question. <laughs> it is, but you know what? Lead me. I put it, yeah, Lead I put me it to, to you. <laughs> and I will reward you. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, whatever, Kim. Seriously, I don't want someone worth hundreds of millions of dollars talking to me about work because nobody earns hundreds of millions of dollars by working. Yeah. You can earn like $5 million by working, but when you start to get into hundreds, that means that you did some work once, and then you made other people do that work for you. Yeah. So I think it's important to start there. And one of the most important things I think we need to do in terms of thinking about social justice and change is really just dismantling the sort of worship around billionaires and this idea that um, these people are self-made. There was an article in Forbes maybe two years ago that said that Kylie Jenner was a self-made billionaire. (laughs) 
And it's just like, come on, words mean things. Okay, bless her heart. I think it's lovely that she has that little lip business. It's just (laughs) good for her. But to suggest that she's self-made when her father was a wealthy lawyer and she grew up like in Beverly Hills is nonsense. That's not self-made at all. And we continue to think that this narrative is important and that when women achieve these levels of wealth, then that's feminism. And that's capitalist feminism, certainly. And that's like girl boss feminism. But uh, there's always someone behind the girl boss who is helping her achieve all of these grand things. And like when you start to see these exposés and publications about the girl bosses and they're like complete nightmares, who are they exactly like? Men. Yeah. And so I, I think we have to recognize these things and this obsession with work. First of all, who cares? Yeah. It, the people don't want to work. No, people don't want to work for shitty wages without health insurance <laughs> for unreasonable hours where they're exploited. So no, under those circumstances, no, people don't want to work, Kim. And... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish she had not said anything at all because she, it, it's clear that she read like half an article in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> no, it's true. Like you can tell she read like half the article and wanted to have a relevant talking point. And all of the, you know, the Wall Street Journal in particular has been wringing their hands over no one wanting to work. But what they're wringing their hands over is that we can't exploit people anymore. Yeah. And we hate that. And so I think we just have to, you know, A, hold Kim to a higher standard because she gets a lot of passes and but whatever. She's just a symptom of a much larger problem. And uh, I... a much larger problem of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there's capitalism and uh, capitalism serves me quite well. So obviously... You know, like you were saying, it's hard, like uh, when you were doing the land acknowledgement yeah. and sort of recognizing that we have to do more than just recite these land acknowledgements at the beginning of events, we, like how are we following through in our day-to-day lives? I think about that question quite a lot, yeah. not only in terms of living on unceded lands, but participating so vigorously in capitalism uh, by having, you know, like a fairly lucrative career and thinking about sort of like... I, I, I've been broke and I'm not going back and I'm not letting my family go back either. And so where do you draw lines around what's acceptable and what's not? And I don't have any answers at all, but it is something that I actively think about. And I wish that we could all think more carefully about that. I've seen this, especially in the past two years, this idea that if you criticize white people, if you say that you don't care about white people, that you're not interested in them, you don't need them, whatever, People are like, stop being so racist. And they say this, like, they believe it passionately. Like, they're not just fucking around. They're like, they genuinely are like, you're being racist against me. (laughs) And I'm always like, Biff, come on. Please, please, with your little khakis, stop, stop. It's like, is that a kink? Because I can. You know, well, I think that many white people have had it so good, even if they don't recognize it, that they're desperately seeking oppression. Or, I grew up working class, etc. And this is why you guys should learn about intersectionality. Yeah. Your working class experience 
is true, and there's lots to talk about, and I'm happy to listen, but it's not the same as a black person's working class experience or a Native American person's working class experience. And so we have to look at like, the complications, and they're not interested. They're just like, I've suffered, therefore I can't have any privilege. When, in fact, we all have privilege, especially if we're sitting in this room today. Very much You so. can afford a ticket to be here. We can, we're on this stage. We know oppression, yes, but I think both of us would admit we have immense privilege. And that's, if everyone would just be more comfortable acknowledging their privilege instead of using it as a shield of, I know pain, therefore I cannot acknowledge systemic racism. I mean, it's pathetic. And it really is time to move past that. And that's why when white people come to cry at me about like being racist, I'm like, yes, yeah. I am. <laughs> I love that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Black Lives Matter movement in America. Um, what do you see the similarities between Australia and the US when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, women are leading it, yeah. for sure. And I think that in both countries, there is this demand that's not going to go away, that we address the systemic issues of police brutality, um, mass incarceration, mm. and the devaluing of the black family. Yeah. And so I think it's the same goals, different origin stories for the goals, but actually not that different. No. And so there is a lot of common ground there. And... I would not have thought that before I started coming to Australia. And then when I got here and I, you know, when I travel to places, I do try to like read a little and know a little bit. And the more I learn, the more I recognize like really we're fighting the same fight in the very same ways. And it's an overwhelming fight. It is. It's, it's just the, the kind of thing, you know, I flew in yesterday and Australia is a really hard country to get into. Once it's, upon a time, it wasn't, though. We should have maybe been a yeah. bit stricter a couple of hundred years ago. I mean... <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. Especially when you come here for work, they're like, how much money's in your bank account? Prove that you have health insurance. And it's like, you think, I want to stay? <laughs> I'm like, I'm going, I mean, to my own shithole. Like, <laughs> it's fine. But I was filling out the declaration card to come into the country. It's standard. The United States is equally toxic, so I'm not comparing the two. But it was like, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And I was like, you guys brought a penal colony here. (laughs) (laughs) What on earth? And that's like when you're reminded that there are these systemic issues, like they're encoded into absolutely every aspect of the country. And so, like, that's the other thing that I see connecting Black Lives Matter both here and in the U.S. Like, it's just baked into everything. I was having this conversation. I did um, the podcast Debutante, which is First Nations debutante balls around Australia, and we went over to the States, especially to the South, where they also had a tradition of black debutante balls. And I was Mm -hmm. talking to this woman. I think it was the Auburn Street Market. It's down the street from the church that Martin Luther King Jr. preached at, like his family preached at and um, I was sitting there, it was this amazing moment where we were talking about our grandmothers and this obsession with cleanliness mm-hmm. and um, I think this, this obsession with cleanliness being so linked to trauma, this fear of white people using any excuse to in a way take away your children Yes. 
Um, and that was something that my family grew up with. You know, it was my mother's generation that they used to inspect Aboriginal children and take them away. And they still forcibly remove them, but now they put it under, you know, enshrine it into um, uh, family law. Um, but it was this really, it's, it's that, that we have these, you know, these big systematic issues, but the, the way that they mutate and perpetuate in your own personal experience, so incredibly common. It just really blew me away. Now, when it comes to the, like, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, do you think it's integral to feminism and where we're at now? And, and if so, why? Well, yes, absolutely. I think any movement to decolonize and to address racism has to inherently be feminist. And feminism needs to recognize that, which, quite frankly, mainstream feminism often does not. Because anytime we leave anyone behind, then we haven't really achieved anything. You know, a lot of times people just think feminism is equality. And my mom loves to say, what, what is that even? Mm -hmm. Um, and she talks about it in the context of marriage because she and my dad have been married for 50, it'll be 50 years this year. And, you know, she was like, there's no such thing as equality in a marriage. Sometimes I did 30% and your father did 70% outside the home. And sometimes that, you know, that was switched around and that's just life. And I think that we have to recognize that same thing in terms of like what we want as feminists, that it's not just about sort of being able to act like men and behave like men. I'll, I, and I'll make those jokes sometimes because they're fun. But are we really, like, aiming that low? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and are we really trying to perpetuate the cycles that have oppressed us? Yes. And have given us, you know, like, lesser of everything. And, and I think, you know, which is why Kim Kardashian will show her ass and say things like, people don't want to work. You know, yeah. if we don't just address all of it at once, so what if we address gender equality while black people don't have any rights? Like, it, then, then that feminism is absolutely meaningless. And that's why you have to look at the intersections and recognize that fighting for black lives means you are fighting for women because black women are women. And fighting for disability justice is feminism because there are women with disabilities. And so on. And so I just think every social justice movement has to be of deep concern to feminism. And it can be exhausting and overwhelming. And a lot of times young feminists will say, but like, that's just so much to take on. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. And that's why you don't do it in one day and you don't do it alone. And you remember that you have to care for yourself as much as you care for others, but to do nothing. I mean, look what nothing has gotten us, and it's nothing good. And I think what you just said about this idea of remembering that black women are women, that disabled women are women, mm -hmm. that trans women are women, I think so often when we refer to women, and I feel like when I'm at festivals like this where, you know, I'm very much like a consumer of it, and, you know, people come here in good faith, but I, I often think we really homogenize this idea of what a woman is. <laughs> we need to really talk about, like, what these representations of women are within the term that we use women, because so often I think automatically, in our mind, we go to privileged and white. Well, yes, and, and privileged especially. Yes. You know, all about women. It is, and it, this is a lovely, this is my second time at All About Women. I actually think it's a lovely, lovely festival. It is. And it's well intended, it's well curated, it's well managed. Um, and the content, I mean, the, the, the people that are coming here are incredible. But who's reached? Like, it's people who have access to travel funds, 
if they don't live in Sydney. It's people who can afford the tickets. And so it's not actually all about women. It's all about women who are middle class or wealthy. And if there are discounted tickets available here and there, that's still like a hand, not not a handout. It's just, it's it's a gesture. It's not necessarily all about women. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in sort of some of the stuff I'm doing now is like, I'm going to come to your event. I'm excited to do so. But what outreach are you doing to communities beyond? And what are you going to do when I leave the stage? And it's really interesting to watch people contort themselves (laughs) to like answer that question. And it's not hard. Like, are you going to start a scholarship fund of some kind? Are you going to blah, blah, blah? And then it makes me seem very high maintenance. <laughs> and I don't know. I think that, like, if you you know, it's like, if that's you what right. you think high maintenance is, okay, sure, okay. Now, I just want to kind of finish up. I've got so many questions, but I realize I do want to take some audience questions. Yes. Um, how do we have radical change or how do we have change systematic change without chopping off people's heads? Or do we need to do that? Because oh, I'm, I'm keen. I think that we need to chop off people's heads. Right. You know, like, Where do we start? The, <laughs> you, know, the, you actually ask a good question. And the answer is that revolution is never polite. Yeah. And, it, you know, like, especially in the U.S., people are like, oh, my God, they tore down a CVS. Uh, so what? CVS is going to be fine. It's a multi-billion dollar corporation. They can afford to lose a building. You know, sometimes, and I, I don't believe in um, murder in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> uh, I don't believe in making people suffer. But I do believe that sometimes people have to get uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think that we are all going to have to learn to tolerate a little bit more discomfort to truly create radical change. And that is with regard to the environment. Like, we're just going to have to walk a little more or bike or take public transportation. And as someone who loves her car, it's sad. But it's also not because that means maybe our children and our grandchildren will be able to, like, sit outside without, like, being flooded like the way you guys have been dealing with or without being scorched from the heat, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it's the question is not like whose heads do we cut off, but what kinds of discomforts are we willing to tolerate to really create change? Because change is not going to come from the people who are unwilling to change. It's going to come from people in this room who at least are aware that change is necessary. And so I think that's a better way of thinking about it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Now, you're someone who wears a lot of hats. You're a storyteller. You're a cultural change maker. I'd be really interested to see what you think. What, 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 is, what is your role in changing culture in response to change? <sighs> you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a lot of different things. I think that... I'm good at acknowledging multiple points of view and nuance. And I think my role is to sort of be the voice of reason sometimes. And yet people still sometimes say, oh, you're radical. It's in- conservative people say I'm radical. And leftist people say that I'm centrist. <laughs> and I, I think both things are probably true. But I just believe in, especially, you know, the older I get, the more visibility 
I, the more power, for lack of a better word, that I achieve, the more I recognize that these things must be distributed and that that's the best way I can contribute to change is by making sure that I don't sit here and, and just enjoy it all without doing something forward-thinking and meaningful with it by, with a lot of different things. One is just sort of continuing to do the writing that I do, um, making sure that I'm as good a teacher as possible because I think a lot of change can happen in the classroom. And it's not indoctrination, it's just, Education and sort of, I don't teach you what to think, but I do teach you how to think. And doing that kind of work, I think, can be really useful for change. So, I well, definitely. I think, you know, cultural change is, you know, it's one of the things that really does create, I think, meaningful pro- progression within our society. You know, um, I don't think change happens from the top down. I don't think cultural change happens from the top down. And I think one of the most powerful things about storytelling is being able to engage with people at not necessarily like an ideological level or a political level but at a heartfelt level Mm -hmm. and you're penetrating the culture of whiteness you know for instance like with what you do in especially you know with, with your comics it's taking something that's usually traditionally white and male and kind of this is a bit spiteful but taking that away from them, kind of fucking it oh, up absolutely. giving that to other people. The more I can take away from a white man, the happier I am. <laughs> no, it's, um, I'm working on a TV show right now called Negroland, and I'm really excited about it because so many people are going to be so mad at the name. <laughs> and Because it's a show about um, wealthy black people. And... Uh, it's based on Margot Jefferson's memoir, Negroland. Yeah. And I love being able to enter a predominantly white space and making just a blackety black black show. Yeah. <laughs> it's so awesome. Like, take it, it, it away. Is. Yeah. And the more creators that get to do that, and we're, it, you know, people are like, have we reached the promised land? Oh my God, no. But we're starting to at least make some inroads. And I think that from pop culture to politics, it all matters. Because when you see more representation on TV, you start to normalize difference. And it helps. It really does. People love to discount pop culture, but pop culture has contributed to far more social change than we give it credit for. Oh, yeah. It's where we say complex, complex representations of identities. Yes. Whether that's like be gender, be race, be class. We actually get complexity as opposed yes. to just representation. And we are humanized. And it, it's actually heartbreaking that that's what it takes for people to be humanized, to see black people as human, to see Asian people as human, to see anyone who's a person of color or different in any way as human. But you know what? If that's what it takes, meet people where they're at. Thank you. Now, I've been really greedy with Roxanne on my piece, so I am going to try and get to an audience question, but we might just have one. Um, with I mean, they can't kick us off the stage. Oh, that's true. <laughs> no one's following. We can stay here all night. Right. Just um, <laughs> um, yeah, I wish. Um, now, International Women's Day and UN Women's Meaningful Annual Themes have been hijacked, corporatized, and replaced by meaningless hashtags. Mm. How do we return it to a day of actual change? <sighs> I think that's, that's a great, a great question. question. Brilliant. You know, it's interesting. Growing up, I never remember celebrating International Women's Day. And every March 8th, when people are like, Happy International Women's Day, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> it's March 8th. Um, you know, for me, it's like, I try my very hardest to not participate in those campaigns. Yeah. I don't think that's what's needed. You, you know, like, International Women's Day, why don't you just take 
24 boxes of tampons to a shelter because that would actually help women and people with uteruses is like access to menstrual menstrual supplies. Um, And so I think do something useful in your community that will support women because otherwise it's just a hashtag like and people like feel so much better about themselves for like posting on International Women's Day like look I love women do you <laughs> would your wife say that you love women <laughs> and but I don't want to take away from people that moment of celebration either so there's nothing wrong with that but it has to be more than just that and frankly every single day needs to be International Women's Day and I think if we can remember that in our thoughts and our actions uh, that is one way to counteract what has truly become a very corporate celebration. And same with Gay Pride and Black History Month. Yeah. And the corporations truly are only ever doing these things in name only. They, there's so little follow through. I have to tell you, like all of those companies that pledged money for Black Lives Matter after George Floyd's murder, I, I have it written down somewhere, but the percentage of companies that actually gave the money they pledged is pathetic. And I know. And so that's why we have to decouple, again, capitalism from so much of what we do because they just do it in name only. It doesn't mean anything. Look at Disney and what they're doing with the Just Say Gay bill in Florida where they're like, we're going to continue to be inclusive by making family-friendly content. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to look at, like, the, you know, worst possible intent, it's totally depoliticizing movements in which yeah. many people have sacrificed their lives for, yeah. you know, and co-opting it for a hashtag or to be Absolutely. part of, you know, like people woke. are afraid of politics mm-hmm. and they're always like, oh, I don't want to talk about politics or I'm not political. Saying you're not political is one of the most political things you can do because that means that you don't have to yeah. think about politics because politics serve you already. And so, yeah. Now, just one final question. Bad Feminist is a seminal text. Um, Do you consider yourself, do you still consider yourself a bad feminist? Or with the impact that you've had, has that changed? Are you mostly a successful feminist with a rebellious edge? Um, I'm a good, bad feminist. (laughs) And yes, I am a successful feminist, but that was never the goal. You know, when I wrote Bad Feminist, I was like, nobody's going to read this because you can go online. All of the essays had already been published and online, so you can just go print them out from the websites. (laughs) Like, just go to Amazon and, like, find the table of contents and then Google you. You'll be fine. (laughs) I mean, buy the book, but... (laughs) You know... I I always try to remind people that there are so many actual activists who are out there putting their bodies on the line and who are doing the hard work every single day in their communities. And so I am a successful feminist. And what I can best do with that success is highlight people who are doing some of the more, I think, not important, yeah, more, well, frankly, way more important, but also like the more truly feminist work. And I also, you know, as I evolve, I'm planning the 10th anniversary version of Bad Feminist, which will be out in 2024. And, you know, people are like, do you, have you changed your thoughts on anything? Well, yeah, I'm way older now. So, of course, I've hopefully changed some thoughts. But what I've been thinking about in recent years, if I was ever going to write an essay collection again grounded in feminism, is sort of like, yes, be a bad feminist 
I didn't expect people to take it the way they did at all. I, I didn't think that, like, the way a lot of people have taken it is, I can do anything, but I'm a feminist, so it's fine. And that's not quite what I meant. <laughs> what I meant is that I have some inconsistencies, but I am a feminist. But, like, also, yeah. I hold myself accountable. Yes. And so... As I move forward, I've been trying to think more carefully about how do I express that I believe in accountability and that I want to hold myself accountable and start, I've, especially in the past two or three years, I've started making some of those more difficult decisions about, you know, like, yeah, I do love that song, but no, I'm not, I'm no longer going to listen to it. Yeah. But yeah, I'm a good, bad feminist. <laughs> um, I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who came. Thank you, thank you so much, Roxanne. Every time I talk to you, my life changes for the better. So thank you for coming to Australia. Thank you all. Thank, thank you. you. Are we done? Yeah, we're done. So we're done. <laughs> Oh, sit down. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. That's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander playwright, actor and screenwriter Nakia Louie in conversation with American author and social commentator Roxanne Gay. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when Chelsea Wadigo and Amy Maguire consider the obstacles and pathways to a new future led by First Nations women. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Marissa Berendt. <laughs>